going to address. I have a confession. Uh, if you look at the title of the sermon, it says, Working for a Living, and I just want to confess that my inspiration uh, for that was a song, because if you know me, I think in songs and books, and I'm not created beyond that. Like, this is all I think of most of the time, unless you tell me to think differently. And so Huey Lewis and the News do not have a song called Working for a Living. They have a song called Working for a Living. But I know that some of you have a sensitive conscience toward grammar, and so I wanted to honor your conscience and make it working for a living. But I'm confessing that in part because I thought of that song and thought of the title, and I thought, well, what other songs do I like that are about work? And I like a lot of them about work, as I started to just list them out. So I just want to note a few. Some of these might be your favorite song. I don't know. You can applaud for that. No, please don't do that. Uh, but they might be songs you've heard before. They're in no discernible order. Uh, I haven't done them by decade or genre. But here are the ones I've thought of that I enjoy. A Hard Day's Night by the Beatles, probably most well-known out of these across generations. 9 to 5 by Dolly Parton, right? That's about work. Uh, working on the Highway, Springsteen is on the same album as Born in the USA, if you remember that album. Remember the handkerchief in the back pocket? Anyway, so uh, Working for the Weekend, Lover Boy, pretty well known, right? Working Man by Rush is probably my favorite working song out of this list, just as a, a matter of personal preference. Working Man Blues and Big City, both by Merle Haggard. Merle Haggard's one of my favorite artists all the time, which probably tells you a little bit something negative about me. Uh, One Piece at a Time by Johnny Cash. If you've never heard that song, and it's appropriate to play for your kids too, it's an incredibly creative song. He's working in Detroit on assembly line for automotive industry, and he realizes, man, I'm not going to have a whole lot to show for this at the end of this job, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to steal a car, but I'm going to do it one piece at a time. And so he takes little pieces out in his lunchbox, and then he carries others out under other things. And over decades, he builds what he terms later this Psycho Billy Cadillac, right? And the, the title weighed 60 pounds, right? He says that at the end. But anyway, Johnny Cash, that song, love that song, right? Working in the Coal Mine, Lee Lorsey. Uh, working for, I'm not going to read all these to you, Working for a Living, Huey Lewis, I mentioned that, Manic Monday, The Bangles, if you're a Bangles fan, that's about work, right? I, I wish it were Sunday, that's my fun day. Car Wash by Rose Royce, yes, I like the song Car Wash, so I even like some disco and 70s stuff, but I, I look at all those songs and I go, these are songs I can think of. I mean, I just quickly listed them out. These are songs I like, that I listen to still, yes, still listen to, and I'm going, what? They're all about work, yes, that's a commonality. But you know what else is common in these? Work is negative in all these songs. Work's hard. Work's difficult. Work's a burden. Work's something I want to get done so I can experience the weekend. I'm trying to get done with work so I can have drinks at 5 o'clock. No matter what you go to throughout these songs, that's a common theme. Work is hard and difficult, and a lot of them, if I can minimize it and avoid it as much as possible, that's the best life you can live. Get out of work. Get past work. And we all know, I definitely know, and that's part of my confession, that the music that we listen to shapes our thoughts. Right? So if you ask the common person who's going to have conversation around work, hey, do you like your job? They are not going to say, I love it. I cannot wait to get to work on Monday. And I love the fact that I have to pull a double three days this week. No, nobody says that. People give you some half-hearted answer about, yeah, it's okay. And I do this. It's okay. These are the things I like about it. I hate these portions of it. And 
it's nothing that our whole heart is given to many times. Because our notion is that work is inherently negative. Work is a necessary evil. And if there is anything positive shared by you and your coworkers, it's this. Well, at least I'm providing for my family. By the way, that's not particularly Christian. Non-Christians in your workplace say the same thing to you. Well, at least I'm providing for my family. Well, at least I'm getting a paycheck. Well, at least we'll have a Disney vacation this year. Those are the things that we are pursuing. Not the relative value of work itself, but could there be a different way to think about work? Could there be a different frame of mind to have around the work you do? Whether it's one of the hardest jobs, caring for small people and wiping their rear ends all day, right? Whether it's doing that, or whether it's caring for aging parents and attending to very similar needs at that end of the life spectrum. Whether it's showing up every day and managing individuals, men and women, and caring for them. Or it's working under the supervision of men and and women as they, we hope, care for you. Could there be a way that we could capture a notion about work that might completely reframe the way we think about it? So even if you like listening to these songs, they don't have to be the arbiter for what's true about work and your labor anymore. Well, the the Bible actually does that. If you look at the the overarching story of the Bible, here's what it has to say about work really quickly. It has to say a lot more than this, but this is all the time I got. All right, so if you start with creation, work is not negative. Work is good and meaningful and a part of what God fashioned us to do. So in creation, in the garden, Adam and Eve are laboring. They are working They are keeping it. They are exercising dominion over it. Work is not bad in and of itself. But when Adam and then Eve choose to fracture relating to God in light of their work, their life, the totality of what they know to be true, and choose sin instead, when they fall into sin... They bring the whole house crashing down with them. And so now, all of a sudden, they're told that work will now involve toil and sweat and burden and difficulty. So now you can watch an athlete that you love emerge through the college ranks and in the middle of their rookie season tear their ACL and guess what? Their career is over. Because physically, your body can't just withstand whatever. And you won't be in the prime of your life forever, Andrew Luck. You'll have to make a decision at some point in time, whether you're as young as he is, or you're as old as some of these place kickers are, hugging 50. You're going to have to make a determination because our bodies are frail and they age. They don't get better with time. You have to deal with the fact that because we are in a post-fall world, That you can't trust the people you work with all the time. And they can't necessarily trust you all the time, can they? You struggle with whether or not they're telling you the truth. Your manager, your supervisor, your chief executive rolls out a new initiative, and you have to question, what's behind this, though? But but really, what's this going to mean for our department, our division? There are those looming questions because trust isn't assumed. We are after the fall. 
But the beauty of Jesus' rescuing work is that he does everything that the first Adam could not and would not do. Instead of choose ease of escape, instead of choose being passive, he quite actively does his work. And we call it that, don't we? His finished work. Quite intentionally. Because he performed it. What did he do? He took on flesh to live among us. So that he might live in sinlessness. Not electing to sin, but electing never to sin. And that he might with determination go to the cross and bear in his body the penalty for our sin. In our place. And die in the grave three days Alive and resurrected, three days later, ascended to the right hand of the Father to return in glory to complete, to consummate His work. What does He do? What is His work? To rescue all those who believe in Him, trust in Him, not the first Adam and not that way of life, but hoping in Jesus And hoping in this truth that by faith in Jesus, there's new work that's going to be done in a new creation. Because we will work there too. And that's the other reason why work's not inherently bad. When you think about heaven, when you think about glory, when you think about where the Lord will establish and bring us, we will work there. And there won't be toil and there won't be burden. There will be rest in our work. But isn't that what we, if you're hoping in Jesus' day, isn't that what we bring to the table right now when you walk in the door of the office? Isn't that what we bring to the changing table when we got to change the hundredth diaper for the, maybe today, depending on how their stomach's doing, whatever it is, right? Aren't we to Bring a sense of he has rescued us. This is where we are going. But we are in him by faith right now. We can work with joy. But I can say that to you and you can say it to me. But tomorrow morning is coming. And you gotta, some of you got to leave right now in a minute to go change a diaper. Right? In the middle of the service. Like We can say that to each other. But it is very difficult in the minute-to-minute, day-to-day reality to say I will take joy in my work because I'm hoping in Jesus and he says I should. So here's the beauty of I think where we're going to go today, be able to go, is that this passage is intended to reframe our understanding of work in light of that story that the Bible tells and in light of the story of our lives, we can actually express a notion of work that both will bring joy to us And I pray, and that's going to be a point of emphasis, I pray would bring the gospel clearly to those who work around us. Whether they're little people in your house that have your same last name, whether they're people you manage, or whether they're the people who manage you. No matter where they situate themselves in relationship to you, I hope that that will be true. Here's the interesting thing about the book of Colossians. I'll just quickly share this with you. We read from Colossians chapter 1 earlier in the call to worship. Colossians 1, you get this vivid picture of who Jesus is. And as the book progresses, Paul writes the letter, he moves from this vivid picture of who Jesus is to who we are by faith in him and then who we're to be toward each other because by faith we're in Jesus because of this vivid true picture 
of him. And that's actually a really great progression for how you live your life if you're hoping in Jesus. Okay, who is Jesus? Who do I know him to be from the word? What does that mean in terms of how we relate to each other as believing people and for the sake of those who don't hope in Christ that they might hear the gospel? Okay, now what does that mean for my relationships? Right, that's, that's not a bad way to live your life every day, to ask those questions and then be informed by the word so that we can actually answer them in such a way that we be in keeping with who we are as Christian people. And that, that really is how the letter unfolds. And so you move to this point in the letter, in chapter 3, and you have what's called a household code, right? These are, these are family codes or household codes that were common in the ancient world. They weren't just particular to Christians. Paul actually fashions this one. This is radically different than most of them would have been. And I'll explain to you what I mean by that here in a minute. But he, in essence, is going to say a couple of different things about the nature of what it means to relate to each other. And I'll get through the dicey terminology here in just a minute. Let's read the text and then we'll get into it. I do have a couple cautions for you, okay? Verse 22 of Colossians 3. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, when Corey read earlier, right, in a parallel text, he read the term bondservants as slaves because it can be translated either way, right? And some of your translations say slaves. And when I say the term slave, and I've said it three times, right, and it was said once earlier, that evokes all kinds of notions and images in our mind. And the challenge is that that creates a notion or an image that's really not accurate to where this passage is coming from. And so that's kind of the nucleus of my first caution, all right? So some of you are like, wait a minute, this isn't talking about my office, right? You got to give us some background here, right? You're astute students of the Bible, all right? Here it is. The background is, first of all, this is not the transatlantic slave trade. This is not 18th and 19th century colonial America and what's occurring there. Slavery, this bond servanthood that would have been taking place, was a financial arrangement. Now, I'll qualify the other side here in just a second, okay? Just give me a second, all right? It was a financial arrangement. There was a sense in which they were possessions. I'll mention that in a moment. But it wasn't in the same manner that you and I understand it in the history of our own nation. The way you know that is this in particular. It did not transfer to the children of bond servants or slaves. If they had children, their children were free. They weren't bound by this arrangement at all. That was not true during the transatlantic slave trade. They did not have education withheld from them intentionally to keep them in subjugation. Matter of fact, many times servants were some of the most full-orbed, educated people that you could find in a city. You know why? Because they were the teachers of the master's kids many times. They wanted the best education for them. 
So if there came a time when this financial arrangement ended, the terms of it ended, they were actually quite marketable in what they could do in society and in the city. That was not the case in colonial and post-colonial America. And finally, I think these are just a few. I think this is the other qualifier that we need not read. Slaves or bondservants kind of import all that notion is it was not based on race. That was an invention, an evil invention, hundreds of years after this was written. It didn't apply to your race, your ethnicity. Anyone could be a bondservant. It wasn't a matter of skin color. It was a matter of this kind of arrangement, but here's the qualifier on the other side, right? If we're going to talk about our jobs, our work, whether inside or outside the house, it's it's not apples to apples. I don't want to portray that either, and you'll see that as the way we work through the text. I'm going to go back and forth. First century context, okay, what's really there? Are there transferable principles we can understand? And I think there are some essential ideas that can really help us. I'm giving you all this qualifier because I I feel like these are mistakes, and I've seen them multiple times when people deal with this text and similar text. So first of all, it's that slavery isn't the slavery we think of. There's a little bit more going on here, which lends itself more to the way we work and operate in our jobs, right? But the other side is you, you can't look at this as modern workplace manual, and I've seen it handled that way too. Here's items one through six. If you just do this, then you have a functional workplace. Add this to your HR manual. That's not... That's not what this is either, okay? And the reason why is because they were viewed as possessions. They were. They were instruments to reach economic goals, and in most cases, you'll see why this is so radical for Paul to speak to them and write to them in this way. They were mistreated. But yes, they were educated. Yes, they were entrusted with much, but they were still enslaved. This was not a benefiting agreement that worked in their favor greatly, I'm just trying to cast it against the picture we naturally form in our mind. That's not accurate either. And somewhere in between are the essential principles, I think, that you and I can grab from this text and say, Lord, we would be faithful to what you've entrusted us to do in our labor, in our work. And I think we can, and here's kind of the crux of it. I think Paul does a couple things here. I think he elevates servants as spiritual equals with their master. You see this in Philemon play out in real life, right? So I don't have time to go through that right now, but if you look at the book of Philemon, you see that. He's pushing that in light of Philemon and Onesimus' relationship to each other. He's already actually established that in verse 11 of Colossians chapter 3. Slave, free, this. The idea is the gospel has actually transformed, brought faith to all kinds of people. So he's elevated the servant And he's brought the the master down. That's what he's going to do in this text to say, you are serving the Lord, right? You're not serving the master, you're serving Christ. And the reason that's important, I think, at the end of the day is because he's rooting this in the gospel. He's not looking at how you operate in the marketplace, in your job, in your household, and going, how would this work best as a matter of conventional wisdom? He's going to say, how is it going to work in light of the kingdom? How is it going to work in light of the gospel? Which I think those of us who are believing in Jesus here today, that's what we want. So that's a lot of background, but the points aren't that long, all right? So there's the sense of hope for you. I think that's important to clarify because I think there's some stuff here that's really beneficial to us, but I don't want you to get the wrong notion about how much you can take away, all right?
So let's look at it. Here's my first point. Work is worship, so we should worship Jesus through our work. We're just going to focus on verse 22 there, okay? And then we'll focus on the remainder of the text under the second point. Again, what does it say, bondservants? Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. With sincerity of heart. That means with faithfulness. With wholeheartedness. When you do your job, you and I are going to be tempted. I'm going to be tempted every day to do things that the vast majority of people do. And here's what they are here in the text. You're going to care about whether or not the boss is around The superintendent is around. The husband or wife is around. And all of a sudden, your labor, your work is dependent on whether or not human eyeballs are on you. And if they're on you, you'll be diligent and faithful. But if they are less on you, you'll goof off on Facebook and send kitten videos and memes to people. The sad thing is, very few of us laugh because we're like, yeah, that's every day, and maybe not you, but it's the person next to you, right? The sad reality is authority present now changes whether or not I choose to work diligently and faithfully. He's like, "You, you can't do that. You can't do that as someone who is there and entrusted with this role, this work, this task. But you also can't do it just... Just to avoid punishment, right? So avoiding punishment, trying to see eyes on you to do that, but also recognition, like that's the other side of people pleasing, right? Well, I'm going to do this if I know that it's going to usher in more awareness that I want the promotion and I should get it. So if I think I'm going to get the promotion, I'm going to be faithful. But if I don't think I'm going to get it, I'm going to be unfaithful? That's your other option. Like kind of faithful is not really a category, right? But that's the way that we function and operate many times. We choose what we're going to do based on whether or not the boss, the manager, the master, co-workers are around. In the first century, that, that was a real temptation for them. The master, the one who established this relationship and had actually brought them into this functional task and set of labors, the master wasn't physically there all the time. And even if there was delegate authority to one of the bond servants, it, it still was a matter of the case that they just couldn't physically be there. And so the temptation was always there to not work with sincerity of heart. This singularity, that's really what he's focused on, right? This single driving wholehearted impulse to just be faithful. And he says the reason why that shouldn't be the case is because you fear the Lord. If you're hoping in Jesus, you're worried about whether or not your boss sees you or not. You're worried about whether or not the promotion skids are greased. That's not what this life is about. Not for those who hope in Jesus. This life is about, we say it in academic fashion all the time. In your seminary classrooms, your discipleship class, we say it from standing right here, right? Your life is about worship. Well, you don't check that at the door when you walk into the office. That's not a nether region where worship can occur. And I just got to gut it out because I got to have a paycheck and health insurance. The fact of the matter is that Paul is pleading with them 
And again, they're, they're in a different context than most of us find ourselves in. Even though our jobs are stressful and can be burdensome at times, he's pleading with them to understand that what would motivate you to be wholehearted and not care and not be motivated primarily or even at all by recognition or retribution is that you worship the Lord, you fear the Lord. If he has claimed you, just like we talked about, if Christ has rescued you and taken you from death to life, he's paid it all. He's made peace by the blood of his cross. Why in the world are actions dictated by another human being being present or not? By a promotion and salary structure being the way we'd want it or not? But at the end of the day, we allow those things to become more significant in our frame of mind. Or maybe it's just me that does that. But I struggle with that on a daily basis in my job. Just meeting numerical equivalents to ensure that year over year we're in a better position than we were last year. The fear of the Lord, the worship of God, his adoration hadn't even crossed my mind. And I've been at this for three hours on Monday morning. Hasn't even crossed my mind. And Paul's saying that whether it's a mundane task in your mind or whether it's significant, the only eyes on you that matter are the eyes that see all things as they truthfully are and will bring righteousness and without partiality judge all things in the end. She's going to talk more about the end, what he says here. That's a significant point in Paul's thinking. I, I want to mention one thing to you here. For Paul, first of all, to address these bondservants at all is a major no-no in these household codes. That just was not something that you did. In the Roman and even the Grecian household codes, there would be a section on masters and bondservants. But here's what it was oriented around. Masters, here's how you instill and maintain fear of you in the bondservant. So Paul is quite intentionally making this point. I'm not worried about your fear of your master as primary concern. I'm concerned about your fear, adoration, worship of the Lord, which will make you faithful to what your master's charged you to do. But it will be for a motivation that is eternal, not temporary based on whether or not he's present, whether or not he's given you what you think he ought to give you whether or not the environment suits you perfectly today as opposed to yesterday. Now all of a sudden the stakes are much higher and the line of sight's much clearer in terms of what's to motivate us and push us forward. So here's part of why I think this is true theologically. If we're meant to be motivated by the fear of the Lord, if the fear of God himself is to, to motivate us, to propel us to worship him through our work, I think that's because if you and I will consider, and I want you to do this right now, I want you to consider why people in your office, why people in your shop, why people out in the field with you for your surveyor, I don't know what your job, why people in the kitchen, wherever you work, why do they say they show up at work? And what do they not say but you hear real clearly? Recognition. Income, yes. But income because income will lead to happiness, they think. 
What else are they motivated by? They're motivated by the fact that they, they want to be happy, right? That's even linked to the last one. They want to have joy. And the way they've been told most repeatedly is the way you have joy is to find the best job you can think of with minimized stress. And you'll have a happy life if you just have that because then you can work as little as possible in the least stressful environment as possible. And that's all you got to do. Here's what's interesting to me. The last one's kind of the linchpin. They want a sense of identity. They want what they labor toward to actually validate who they are. They don't use all these words. But if you listen, that's what you hear. Here's the amazing thing to me. You don't need any of that stuff because you've already got it. In the gospel, you don't pursue wealth for the sake of itself. Lord, give me neither poverty nor riches, but that I might hope in you. So if you give me a great seven-figure income, or I've got a scraping claw, he's faithful to provide for what I need. You don't have to wrestle with, am I going to be able to take joy in this? Because you literally can see the connection of the dots to what you're doing, the Lord's control, and what he intends to do in the lives of other people. Your family, your friends, we might call them biblically, your neighbors. How you might love your neighbor. And your identity isn't wrapped up in the job you show up to or the career that you're building. And I don't care if you're 18 or you're 80. If you built it and what's done is done or you're about to start building it. Who you are is not what you do. But who you are can greatly inform the impact of what you do. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's Paul's point. Is that in gospel hope, We're not striving after what people commonly strive after. Because in Christ himself, we have it. So if we have hope in Christ, our perspective and the way we operate and activate things is totally different. It's totally different than what it would be otherwise. We read a parallel text earlier from Titus 2. I'm just going to read this section again. It was the last section that was there. It sounds very similar to our text. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. I grew up in the 70s and 80s. So when you're in elementary school, or elementary school, or however you pronounce it here. I'm from Lexington County, South Carolina. I mispronounce everything, all right? Nevertheless, when I was in school, all right, and started getting about to the age where boys start noticing girls, and girls start noticing boys, and you cared about that, I remember the girls who got attention, they had a few key accessories, all right? They had jelly shoes, all right? No, they did not have Crocs. They had Old school, real jelly shoes, all right? They tried to make a comeback a couple years ago, and they just kind of fell flat. But you saw them, right? They're like web-looking, and most of the time they were fluorescent pink, right, or green, something like that. That was real eye-catching. They usually had those. They had jelly bracelets, right? And usually what would start is your collection would start. I mean, it's just thin jelly bracelets, right? You would start like, remember you web them, and you put two right here, and that wasn't enough? And so the girls who got attention usually, I mean, they legitimately they had 40 on each wrist, right? It was like these skinny little arms, 10-year-old arms, and like all these jelly bracelets. They like, had to walk around with their hands like this to keep them on, right? They had that, and then they had the side ponytail with about 
Five aerosol cans of white rain sprayed up in there, and then like a scrunchie there. It was definitely fluorescent. Had to be, right? But the girls that wore that stuff, they got our attention. Now, what we didn't dare say is, you know what's awesome? Your bracelets. You know what looks fantastic and beautiful today? Your jelly shoes. No, 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 no. Man, if you haven't learned this yet, there's a key qualifier in the statement, okay? Those earrings don't just look good. Baby, they look great on you. That last phrase is really important, okay? Really important because it gets at the essence of what you're actually trying to communicate. Paul's plea in Titus 2 is really the same as Colossians 3 and 4.1. When you do your work, not to please people, and not because of eye service, but because you just long to be faithful, because you want to worship the Lord, you know what happens? You string pearls and earrings and put affixing accessories on the doctrine of God, on the gospel. You call attention not to those things, but to God himself. You call attention to who God is and how he is faithful in the gospel by your work. And that's important because I'm just going to be honest with you because I've been this guy and I don't ever want to be it again. I want to be careful. I won't, I won't be too strong here, okay? But I just let me ask you this this way. If you are very vocal about your faith, very vocal about your faith in your workplace, I don't want to throw cold water on that at all. But I do want to caution you in something. If you are a bad employee and you backbite the other employees and you talk trash about the manager when they're not there, would you cool it a little bit with how much you say? And I think that grows out of the text, honestly. Both these texts we're looking at. I think Paul's point is, if people are coming to faith in Jesus and they are bond servants in these households, and because they come to faith in Christ, they're, they're actually less active in their work because, they, hey, man, I'm sharing the gospel with people. Well, yeah, but you've been on a 45-minute break that's supposed to be 15. Like, you can't blow off your work responsibilities and say you're acting in faithfulness. Be very careful about that. Because keep in mind that there's not a little blurriness in your unbelieving manager's life. There is blindness and deadness there. So what you are hoping by the grace of the Lord and his mercy that he will do and pleading with him to do is, God, would you make by my work and my diligence and my faithfulness the gospel attractive? Not that it's not in and of itself, but for this blind man, this blind woman, would you adorn the gospel, this doctrine of God? And would you wake them up? Would you give them life they might believe in you through it? Now all of a sudden your work's a little different than just show up and mail it in if you can, if they're not around. But how do you adorn the doctrine of God? Well, what does that look like? See, Spurgeon preached Titus 2 and Colossians 3 multiple times, and he came up with about 10 different lists of elements, qualities in the Christian life that he thought adorned the gospel in, in a work setting. I'm just going to give you a few because I think this might be good fodder for your community group discussion. All right, This might be an area where you could go, I struggle with that, or I'm not sure even how to do that, accomplish that in my workspace. These are going to be very biblical terms. Holiness. 
Right? Are you, is your devotion to the Lord evident? I, I don't mean that you don't say the wrong words and you say the right words and you, you don't smoke or drink at the wrong times or in front of the wrong people or at all. Those can be matters of holiness as matters of conscience, and I'm not saying that they're not. But I'm just saying that there are people that are part of cults in this area and not part of cults in this area that don't do certain things and do other things. Like that, that alone doesn't make you stand out. That alone doesn't draw distinction. Holiness is a matter of purity and devotion to the Lord because you really want to relate to Him. You love Him. And when that's what comes out in your conversations and your choices at work and your choices on business trips, when it's evident that that's true and you're able to speak to that because people will ask you about that, when it comes out of that relationship, then when you want to turn around three days later and say, well, it's about my faith in Christ, my relationship with Him, that He's He's actually forgiven me and welcomed me to be with him. So holiness is a dimension that's there. Mercifulness, in particular with coworkers or if you're in a supervisory position. I think about this with my own kids and how much I fail at this. Are you, are you merciful? Or are you so hyper-exacting that like, if, if this is what we said we're going to do, this is exactly the way, and the hammer is going to fall, and then three more are going to fall after that one? Or is there a sense in which lack of understanding on your part, for example? You didn't communicate fairly. The initiative was not rolled out accurately or with enough time. Do you have the wherewithal by the grace and work of the gospel in humility to say, that's on me. That was not equitable and that wasn't even fair to you to do that in that way and then expect you to abide by these accountability standards because you really didn't know what you were supposed to do and you didn't have enough time to do it. But it's hard to do that in a self-protecting environment like most of our workplaces. You start making statements like that, you're going to get forced terminated, right? So I'm not saying go get yourself fired. I'm just saying, do we exercise a spirit of mercifulness? Do we want to exhibit mercy in what we do? Do we do that with our own children? It's not by accident that this follows admonitions to wives and husbands and, and fathers not discouraging their children and bond servants and masters. That, that's important to recognize. I don't have as much time to dig into it. I wish I did. Kindness. Are you, just, are you just a kind person? There are times when I have to fire people in my job. I don't use that word all the time. But that's what it is, right? And when people have it done to them, that's what they call it. It hurts. I've been fired before. I didn't enjoy it. I didn't like it. I didn't appreciate it. And honestly, when it happened to me, the way it was unleashed on me, it was just downright damaging and so I, I am a firm believer that even though people aren't going to appreciate it, people aren't going to necessarily acknowledge all the reasons that you think are there, I think there's a way to do that with kindness and genuine concern. And if you can do that with kindness and genuine concern, you can do anything in the workplace with kindness and genuine concern. But that ought to be what we're known for. Not ranting and raving, not flying off the handle, but steady kind. And when someone confronts you or someone wants to get heated, the ability to step away or step in in a way that is still kind. Happiness. Spurgeon handles this at length. He's not saying be glib about everything. He makes that point. But like, you, if you walk around moping all the time, how is that going to adorn the gospel? How's it going to adorn the doctrine of God? There, there ought to be a joy in what you do. And 
a gleaning joy from what you do. Integrity. That probably almost goes without saying, but at the end of the day, can people trust you? Unselfishness. Right? Do you want what's best for your division, your company, the kitchen and the servers? Do you want what's best for the guy calling out the trucks? I used to work loading and unloading trucks, right? And the people cutting the trucks trying to get three to Atlanta all at the same time at 3 a.m.? You care about everybody getting the credit for it? You're going to shift and, and move? And by the way, while we're on the subject of the trucking dock, because I've, I've lived on two of them in my life, let me just say that I am incredibly sympathetic to all of you who work all night in environments that most of us would vomit if we had to be at because we don't have the backbone for it. And there's something to be said for that in the province of the Lord, too. That you're just faithful to show up, and it's physically demanding, and it's hard. But I'm going to tell you one thing. I got ripped up one side and down the other for misloading freight multiple times. And the reason I'm saying I'm sympathetic to you is I know that all us white-collar folks are going to go, you should go straight to HR with that. Well, you should, but you and I both know you can't. You and I both know you can't. And so finding a way in which you could pursue that, finding a way in which you can grant a healthier environment is going to look different in different situations. That's my point. It depends on your job, your role, and the structure and environment of your workplace. You can work for good and betterment. I'm not saying that. I'm just mindful of that, okay? If you're independently owned and operated and have no corporate structure, we're going to say all kinds of weird stuff to you. You're going to, that ain't going to work, that ain't going to work, that ain't going to work. I get that. I understand that. And it might do for brothers and sisters around you to speak in and say, well, how, how do I adorn the doctrine of God? How do I work for a better environment, which I do think is part of our charge as Christians? All right, that's a side note. I'm back on task, okay? His final note in this list that I'm using is patience. Do you exhibit patience? Especially, he talked about times of trouble. Right, when things in your office, your business, your bottom line is pinched and you didn't see it coming, like, are you going to be patient to seek a solution? Are you going to be patient with your children to seek a solution? Am I going to do that? Those are some of the ways in which, those are virtues, those are qualities that adorn the doctrine of God because they are so different. They are distinct. They are owing to the gospel activity the Lord is working in and through you by faith. He's doing that for his glory. Those are evidences of that. All right, let's move to the second point, just for the sake of time. Not only are we to worship Jesus through our work, but... Christ is our master, that's the emphasis here, so we serve Jesus through our work. When you think about how you live and how you breathe in your job environment, let's think about service. Whatever you do, verse 23, work heartily. As for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. You receive an inheritance as your reward. If we're going to ring the bell of radicalism for Paul, well, he's, he's just knocked it off its stand here. Not only am I going to address bondservants directly, Paul, you're not supposed to do that, not only am I going to set them as equal with the masters and how they relate to God and Christ. You're not, not supposed to do that, Paul. The Roman and Grecian understanding. 
And not only am I going to say to them, your fear chiefly is of the Lord, not your master. Not supposed to do that, Paul. You're definitely not supposed to tell them they're going to get an inheritance because they'll never have an inheritance. A bondservant doesn't accrue property or possessions, assets that they retain. Their children might be free, but their children don't gain the assets from them. There's no willing of things. So there's, there's no inheritance to be had for them or for their children. And Paul actually says there is. There's a grander inheritance to be had in the Lord. There is the joy and contentment, the immaterial realities that are there. But there's a hope in Christ that not only fulfills our understanding of what we do day to day, fearing the Lord, sincerity of heart, okay, but we, we are working because of the promise of a new creation. That, that is chiefly what our labor is about, no matter what assets we accrue here. That's why if I can provide a word of caution, I, I would be careful, careful here, I would be careful in your understanding of how you financially plan to read this text over and over again. I'm not saying that you shouldn't plan. I'm pro-retirement. I'm pro-investment savings. I'm pro all of that, okay? I just would be very cautious about statements and mentalities that are the reason you're doing this is so you insulate yourself from hardship. The reason you're doing this is so you live like nobody else gets to live. I, I would challenge that as a primary motivation for why you ought to do those things, and you ought to, I think. I think you ought to do them. But I, I think the point here is not material inheritance. The, the, the point here is that even if you do have material inheritance, and it's got eight figures in it, at the end of the day, Paul is trying to reach into the heartbeat of what it means to belong by faith to God and Christ and go, the inheritance with him in the new creation, that, that's what ought to drive us and motivate us and that's what forces us to look at, are we adorning the doctrine of God? Are we faithful? Do we long for God to make other people faithful by faith in the gospel through what we do because we want them to have that inheritance too. That's part of what he's getting at here. It's interesting, though, that he goes on in, in verse 25 to make a statement, and it's hard to know, like, what, are you talking to the bondservant, or are you talking to the master? Like, what, what do you mean when you say, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there's no partiality? And we see it, right? Again, grammar and structure. That's the end of that paragraph. The paragraph is about bondservants, right? It's got to refer to bondservants. I think it refers to both. I think as a matter of just logical progression, it refers to both. He's getting ready to talk about masters, but he's not there yet. And I think he recognizes there can be wrongdoing, right? People-pleasing, self-recognition, avoiding punishment. I can do it because I'm not sincere, but I just want a paycheck. I can do it for all kinds of I can do my employer wrong and doing all those things and a thousand other things that are wrong. They're not appropriate. And the master can make things difficult and hard, right? To, to quote Ebenezer Scrooge, well, I'm, I'm his charge. He has the ability, because he's over me, he's my supervisor, talking about Fezziwig, right? To make my life difficult and arduous or happy. 
He has the power to do that, Scrooge says. He does. Is the power to do that. So it's very easy to do someone wrong when you have that kind of power. And so I, I think both are being talked to, and I think it's important that by the time you, you move into 4.1, you take partiality there in 25 and look at 4.1 and say, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly. And now you recognize something if you're in the servant position, you're in the employee position. I'm going to have a temptation to have someone not treat me fairly and justly. And I have to recognize that retribution isn't mine. If we want to dial up Johnny Cash again, I mentioned him earlier, right? If you've ever heard the song Oni, right? If you hadn't, it's appropriate. You can listen to it. I don't know if you want your kids to listen to it. It doesn't have any profanity in it. Nevertheless, it's all about a guy who's worked in a shop for decades. Those of you that work in shops, right? Machinist shops, fabrication shops, you'll appreciate this, right? Worked in shop for decades, and Oni has been a supervisor, and he's about to retire. And the superintendent comes by and says, hey, we're going to have a little reception for you. He's like, I don't care about the reception, because at 4.30 today, Oni's going to get his, right? He stood over me all these years. He screamed at me when I come in a couple minutes late, and finally, I'm just going to punch him right in the face when I walk out of here today. And how many of us have felt that way? Worked at a golf course. Had an assistant pro. Man, man, you stand in front of those drivers one more time. And I, I'm kidding, all right. Worked in restaurants where I've had managers and assistant managers that's treated me like garbage. The trucking doc, I don't have the heart to bring that up again. I'm about to have PTSD over it again right now, just bringing it up. I'm joking. Those are hard environments to be in. And let alone being faithful decade after decade under someone's thumb, who doesn't care about you. They just care about production. And they'll get it out of you however they have to. Because you're just a commodity. You're just a tool to be used. And you're all the while trying to fear the Lord, (laughs) right? Trying to show up and be faithful. Some of us work in really easy environments. You don't even know what I'm talking about when I make the comments I just made. Some of us have worked or are working in those types of settings. And I'm telling you that this is a word for you. The Lord is righteous in his judgment. The Lord will correct. The world will not be as it is forever because newness is coming. But the hope here is not in the newness. The hope is in the Lord. Because we fear the Lord, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't get out of those circumstances or resign or transition. But there are times where you, you have to be faithful and stay the course. And in so doing, you're recognizing that God is the righteous judge. And you're remembering what Jesus did. All right, We, we were in Peter last week. I just want to remind you, 1 Peter 2.23. Jesus, when he was reviled... He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. What did he do that you and I can do in any work setting? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We've got to entrust ourselves to him who judges justly in those moments. And in so doing, the adorning of the gospel is happening. But, But what does it mean... 
Because we got one verse to the masters, right? And we do kind of look and go, oh, wait a minute. Well, these people in management, if, if it's roughly approximated to that, okay, if we're trying to apply this in today's era, these people in management, man, they, they get one verse? Come on, man, we just got a whole paragraph. Like, why, why do they get one verse? That's not fair, right? Because we're doing the math on sentences, right? Because we had to write sentences when we were a kid. Hey, you had to write one, I had to write 25. That, that's not how this works. It's not how many sentences are there. The Lord is meticulous to ensure that his word is exactly the way he intends it to be. So it is the power exhibited in the sentence. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing what? That you also have a master in heaven. I have one daughter. She's 10. She has not gone on her first date she doesn't want me to talk out loud about how long that's going to take before she gets to go on her first date because it's a higher number than she thinks it is, even though we've talked about it. But I can guarantee you when that day comes and she goes on her first date that he will come to the house. I don't care who he is, even if he's your kid. Okay, He, he, he will come to the house, saying this out loud on purpose just in case, all right? I know the odds. I know the odds. One of you is going to be this kid, right? He will come to the house, and I will not be mean intentionally. Um, and I won't intentionally be mean, I promise. I want to be kind. Kindness, right? I need to read my own nuts. Kindness, I need to be kind. I need to be kind. But I will say to him, this is great. I'm so glad that you can take out my daughter, Evie. Uh, you guys will need to be back at this time. I hope you have a great time. And then when you come back, I, I'd like for you to come in. I want to talk about what you guys did on your date. Now, let me ask you something. Do you think I need to elaborate on what I mean? That's pretty short, right? It took me like 15 seconds to say that to him. Do I need to detail out my expectations? Do do I need to say everything I mean and don't mean to have happen? No, he just needs to know one thing. I am entrusting you with authority over someone I care about deeply. But you are under my authority. You're not an authority unto yourself because I'm entrusting her to you. You are not in your management. I don't care if you own the company. As a believing person, you have a master in heaven. You are not the chief master. You are under authority, and so you need to treat your employees and your staff justly and fairly. And the way you interact with them, and the way you honor them in front of other employees, and the way that you compensate them, and the way that you care about their family through the benefits you may or may not be able to offer, but be truthful with them about that. It might be one sentence, but it's a huge reassurance and a sobering reminder. Treat them justly and fairly. You are not in charge, even though the franchise agreement might say you are. You are not in charge even though the banner has your name on it and you founded the company. You have a master in heaven. And because we have a master in heaven, whether you're the the, the master in this model, you're there to serve the Lord Christ. If you're a servant in this model, you're, you're there to serve the Lord Christ. We're serving Christ through our labor and our work. 
whether we're in our household or we're in an office building, whether we're in higher education or we're working in sanitation, it doesn't actually matter because there are no trivial jobs. I hope you see that. Whatever you do, it's not mundane. People may tell you it is. And people may do silly stuff like go, well, because you only make this much, your job's not worth very much to society. Remember, some of you know this story, that when Kennedy's touring NASA and he sees a janitor, he's like, hey, what are you doing there? He's just trying to be nice, and that's all about PR, right? JFK didn't care what he was doing. He as much as said that privately later. But nevertheless, it was a good photo op, right? So he walks over and says, hey, what are you doing? I'm putting a man on the moon. That's what I'm doing. That's why I clean the toilet. That's why I mop the floors, because I'm putting a man on the moon. So he understood that what he was doing was contributing to something, even if he couldn't see the way that was working out. What you're doing is in fear of the Lord. If you look to Him daily, whether you have to type 90 words a minute, or you have to clean up after people, or you got to teach kids that don't want to learn and hate you for it in a classroom, no matter what you are doing, you're not serving firstly them. You are serving the Lord Christ. And in doing that, you are fearing the Lord. You're worshiping Him. And you're honoring work and labor. And we're going to honor work and labor and we're going to participate in it forever. So let's, let's be evidence of that to the people around us. If Jesus has finished His work so that we can hope in Him, if He's rescued us to grant us joy in Him, do that at your work because there will come a time when we pray that he will say, and you will hear by faith in him, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, you will enter into your master's rest. And the master's rest still involves work. So let's work in rest and let's rest in our work and hope in Jesus. Let's pray and then we'll sing together. God, we do thank you that we have the opportunity to work. Perhaps we should start there. I don't thank you enough for that. We thank you that we have the opportunity to fear the Lord, to serve you, to honor you. We know that in doing that, the gospel is evident. Your grace and your mercy in us and through us is evident. And God, we're even reminding each other that our hope is in you, that we don't look to the first Adam. We, we hope in the second. We hope in Jesus, who through his finished work has made our work and joy possible. So I pray, God, that as we work this week, I pray tomorrow morning that you would bring the word in front of us, bring this word to mind, stir in our hearts by your spirit that we might worship you and serve you in our work, in the home, outside of the home, and that we might adorn the doctrine of God. And I pray that in and through it, you bring great glory to your name. And I pray that you would bring sons and daughters to glory, that you grant them faith in Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.